Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The economy took center stage this week with the announcement that we are now experiencing the highest rate of inflation in 40 years. Administration officials and the chair of the Federal Reserve System, Jerome Powell, saw it as a pivot point. Whereas just a few weeks ago, the mantra was that inflation was transitory, Powell sheepishly opined that it was probably a good time to retire that word. The core problem is that demand is far outstripping supply. Money is cheap, and people have a fair bit of it in their pockets, including from the stimulus. So they're eager to spend. But COVID, among other things, has crippled supply channels, and a lot of people have left the workforce. So there are fewer products to buy. To combat inflation, the Fed is now charting plans for a quicker increase in interest rates, which have hovered at historic lows since the pandemic began. But the problem of inflation is just as acute, if not more so, in political terms. Inflation is a political stink bomb. That means the current inflationary spike is a serious political problem for President Biden, even though, as a practical matter, his ability to influence it is limited. These problems play out in facts and figures, but underneath they drive the daily mood and fortunes of people across the country, which is, by and large, not so great. To help explain what's happening and what it augurs for the coming months, I am joined by a superb panel of economic experts. And they are... Annie Lowry, a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers economic policy, as she did previously at The New York Times and Slate. Her book, Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World, was a New York Times book review editor's choice and shortlisted for the McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. Annie, welcome to Talking Feds. Thanks for having me. Catherine Rampell an opinion columnist at the Washington Post, so a former colleague, where she writes about economics, public policy, immigration, and politics. She's also an economic and political commentator for CNN, a special correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, and a contributor to Marketplace. Thank you very much for joining, Catherine. Delighted to be here. And Larry Summers the President Emeritus and Charles W. Elliott University Professor at Harvard University, where he became a professor at age 28, the youngest in Harvard's history. Before that, he was Secretary of the Treasury in the Clinton administration and Director of the White House National Economic Council in the Obama administration. In 1993, he was awarded the John Bates Clark Medal, given to the most outstanding economist under 40 in the United States. And last but not least, the distinction that launched him into all of the others. He was, probably doesn't know it, the resident advisor in my sophomore dorm entry. Thanks so much for joining this special episode of Talking Feds, Larry Summers. Glad to be with you. I want to give a quick explainer on the terms fiscal and monetary policy, which are thrown around a lot in this week's episode. So monetary policy refers to actions of central banks like the Federal Reserve in setting interest rates and controlling the total supply of money in the economy. Fiscal policy, on the other hand, refers to the tax and spending actions of the federal government controlled by the president and Congress. All right. So economics normally isn't concerned with the morning's news, but today it is because the morning brought a report that we are now in the sharpest inflationary spike in some 40 years. Consumer price index rose by 6.8% in the year ending November. What's going on and did the sharpness of the rise surprise you? So the number came in more or less as expected. It is obviously 
quite high relative to the last several decades, but it, it is what forecasters had been predicting based on the numbers coming in the past few months. To some extent, it's a little bit backward looking because the snapshot of data that goes into this report occurred before some recent declines in energy prices, for example, and some other commodity prices. But there are some other numbers, if you look under the hood, that were more concerning, like the increase in shelter prices that will probably stick around for a little while. In general, the increases in prices were pretty broad-based. So we don't know whether this was the high point of prices. I think there is some hopefulness about that, given that, again, energy prices have come down since these numbers were measured. But there is reason to be concerned that we may be stuck with this for a little while longer. That's absolutely correct. I think one of the many things that's interesting about this period is We have had for middle and lower income households sort of the same set of economic problems with different types of emphases for like the last 20 years, right? We've had the problem of stagnant wages. We've had the problem of high inequality. We've had the problem very often of somewhat uncomfortably high unemployment. We're now facing a very new and different and newly uncomfortable set of challenges And I think one thing that's been fascinating about this period is despite the fact that I think you could make the argument that the economy is basically as good as it's been or recovering to a place that will be as good as it's been in quite some time, this is a really pressing issue and people are actually pretty dour about it. And I think that these price increases, given that they're coming amidst an affordability crisis for housing, healthcare, childcare, heavy loads of educational debt are really affecting consumer confidence and perhaps voter behavior in somewhat unexpected ways. Even if at a personal level, your cost of living, your cost of your groceries and all the things that people buy actually hasn't increased that much and certainly not for that long. I don't think any of this is terribly unexpected. We had an economy with a 3% GDP gap and we tried to put 15% of GDP into it while monetary policy had its foot on the accelerator hard. It seemed clear to me that that was going to produce an inflationary dynamic, and it has. The inflationary dynamic is across a wide range of goods. It's persisted for a long time. And here's the remarkable thing. The remarkable thing is that monetary policy almost no matter how you measure it, is now substantially looser with record job shortages than it was a year ago when we were still consumed by the COVID recession. Looser measured by real interest rates, looser measured by financial conditions, looser measured by the size of the Fed's balance sheet. So it seems to me that we are going to be dealing with inflation for quite some time to come. I was glad to see Chairman Powell and Secretary Yellen both renounce the use of the word transitory. Seems to me that this is going to be with us for some time to come. And I guess I think it's worth highlighting that, yes, no doubt some inflation is transitory. But if you take the last two months and you annualize the inflation of the last two months, it works out to 11% a year. Now, that is in no way the underlying inflation that the United States has. Lots of it is transitory. But the question is not whether some of inflation is transitory. The question is whether it's plausible to think that without administering some kind of jolt to the economy, we're going to get back to price stability by any concept, like, for example, the Fed's 2% inflation concept. And I guess the other thing I'd say is that my study of political history, whether you look at what happened to Harry Truman in the midterms in 1946, whether you look at what elected Richard Nixon, whether you look at what elected Ronald Reagan, is that inflation is kind of a disaster for the progressive project. So I think the political consequences of generating this inflation are likely over time to be fairly severe. lot there to unpack. Let's stick with the economic implications and double back at the end toward the political ones. So 
Yes, I think you were early to this sense, Larry Summers. There had been a kind of growing chorus of economic thought that maybe inflation was not as important even organically in the economy. I think that notion is now out the window, the abandonment of transitory reflex. Do we think that there's been any mismanagement over the last couple of years, any sense of the Fed's being asleep at the switch, that it has now come roaring back? You can read what I wrote a year ago. I thought that the given how much progress that the economy had made, the $2.8 trillion was substantially excessive. This is for the American Rescue Plan, right? Right. There was a $900 billion bipartisan bill that passed during the transition. And then there was a $1.9 trillion bill that President Biden passed. I thought that $2.8 trillion was way excessive given the $30 billion a month that payrolls were running short. I didn't see any reason to replace $30 billion of lost payrolls with $200 billion a month of new spending. And I thought what it would do was produce a lot of demand that would lead to bottlenecks, which would lead to inflation. And whether you have a bottleneck or not depends on supply and demand. You don't have a bottleneck unless you have a large amount of demand. I also thought that there was no reason for us to be buying $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities a month in the face of a bigger housing price run-up than we'd had before the 2008 financial crisis. I thought there was no reason why we needed to be telling people, as the Fed was over the summer, that we wouldn't have any increase in interest rates until 2024 in the face of these kinds of deficits. So my view is that we turned on the bathtub and we wanted to have a deep bath and we didn't pay close attention. And so the whole bathroom's flooded is the right way to think about the way policy was carried on. Annie and Catherine, so without exactly a postmortem of the policies, do you agree with Larry's fundamental analysis of why we are at record levels of inflation? Yeah, I mean, surely there is something happening with supply chain bottlenecks. Surely the amount of stimulus, the unprecedented amount of deficit spending that we did also has had a big part. I think that there's been this debate now going on for a year about, well, is this a supply side phenomenon or demand side phenomenon? And I think as Larry pointed out, it's certainly both. But I think the question of how transitory this is, how much things revert to the mean, how much as the Fed begins to normalize policy, this cools off and as the supply chain bottlenecks ease, you know, I really don't think that anybody knows the answer to that question. I think if you were a policymaker, the thing that would be really worrying you, both in economic terms and especially going into an election year, is that wages aren't keeping up with inflation. And so, you know, in real terms, you see some people losing purchasing power, right? Having that sense of falling behind. That's surely not true for everybody. And again, I don't think anybody quite knows where this is headed, given that this was hard to predict at the outset. After a recession, painful and enormously slow to recover from, we've actually recovered from the coronavirus recession fairly quickly. And there was certainly more than enough stimulus to fill that output gap. And I think that the question of how much additional stimulus or just additional spending would go to fixing more structural problems and therefore could even be deflationary is a big and a really difficult debate to sort out before you see how things actually get enacted and how long it takes to enact. The only thing I think I would add to all of this is that I, I agree that both monetary policy and fiscal policy have been very expansionary. But we probably would have seen above-trend inflation even if we had a more right-sized, whatever that would look like, fiscal approach, for example. Basically, there are supply chain bottlenecks around the globe. Inflation is up in Europe as well, in countries that both had quite generous fiscal responses and those that didn't. And it's higher here. So if you want to look to why there might be a, a difference between the level of inflation in the Eurozone, for example, versus here, yes, you could say one difference is the enormous size of our fiscal response relative to some of those other countries in that area. But even absent that, 
we would be seeing some difficulties. And that's just a function, I think, of the fact that we kind of powered down the economy last year. We're trying to power it back up. Everybody's trying to go out and buy things at the same time. And they're shifting more of their basket of consumption away from services, which still remain somewhat higher risk, things like travel or dining out and towards physical goods. So that's driving up demand even more for those products at the same time that you have factories having rolling blackouts in China and all of these problems with ports and trucking shortages. My point is basically we would have these bottlenecks no matter what. They were exacerbated by the fact that demand got juiced so much more than even it would have been in whatever a more appropriate fiscal response environment might look like. I think that is fair. But the instruments we could control, which were fiscal and monetary policy, were controlled in ways that substantially exacerbated the situation. And we stand out for having inflation at a level where it's the dominant political reality with respect to economic issues. And that's because there is, in the 10%, 11% annual rate that inflation has run at these last couple of months, there is an element of transitory supply-side stuff, and there is an element of policy error that is going to be painful to correct. And the reason it's so much more politically salient here is that people look through the transient stuff. They look through that here and they look through that in Europe. And once you've looked through the transient stuff, there isn't a serious problem in the rest of the world. And there is a significant problem here because of the things that we did in terms of continuing to persist with super low monetary policy, even after it was clear that there were massive job shortages. So I think that we do have a real problem we're going to have to work through as a consequence of the policy choices that we have made. That's the unforced error. Yes, there are difficulties in the environment that couldn't be helped given the pandemic, but that's not the reason why inflation is now a primary concern about the future of the United States on the part of a substantial fraction of the electorate. The only thing I I think I would add to this is that if you are looking at even just the headline economic statistics in another way, this economy is very, very good, better than many economies have been over the last 20 years. So we've had a very dramatic labor market recovery surges in household wealth, rising wages at the bottom end, which has been a a really terrible problem, seeing wage increases at the bottom. Obviously, before the coronavirus hit, those were increasing as well. Businesses, in some cases, are are seeing record sales. You have the S&P that's gone up pretty dramatically. And I do think that it's worth noting that in some ways, this is a problem that you're getting that's coming downstream of good things happening, whether those things feel sustainable or are given the inflation and given that the Fed now really is in a crosshairs in the sense that it's going to have to balance the overheating of the economy or unemployment rate continuing to go down with inflation. And it's really facing questions about its dual mandate that I think it hasn't faced. One thing that I've been trying to sort out in my own reporting is if you're kind of an average or a typical family, what this has felt like and what this has meant for you as a whole. Because a lot of families still, especially if they're getting those CTC payments or got stimulus payments, they're coming out really far ahead. But again, when I think that all three of us have touched on this, people hate inflation in a way that goes beyond their experience of it. And I think it's really worth taking that seriously, as well as we're talking about taking it seriously as a technocratic policy problem that folks are going to have to deal with. I think there are two parts of this. There's a part of this that is about the psychology of inflation, which I think has to do with the fact that people may be getting a 5% wage increase because there's inflation. And without inflation, they would have gotten a 2% wage increase. But they think they got a 5% wage increase because they were great not because of the inflation. And so they blame the inflation for the bad stuff and they don't credit the inflation for the good stuff. And I think that's a well-documented psychological phenomenon. You talked about all the good things that were going in the economy and you're right. 
And that's certainly what defenders of the policy approach we've taken say. I think my view is that it's really fun while you're eating chocolate cake, but it's basically unsustainable if that's your whole diet. And that we are basically in, have pursued an unsustainable policy. Can I just ask, is eating chocolate cake here the very, very low interest rates? The combination of the very low interest rates and the very large fiscal stimulus. We have very, very little, if anything, in the way of examples of engineered soft landings of the economy. We haven't had inflation for the last 40 years. In the 40 years before that, when inflation developed, we never really controlled it without there being a recession. And so I think that the assumption that this policy has somehow been successful for disadvantaged people presumes that somehow as a consequence of having pursued this policy, the average unemployment rate for high school graduates or for high school dropouts is going to be lower over the five-year period from 21 to 2025 than it would have been if we pursued a different policy. That would not be my best guess. My best guess would be that as a consequence of this, we are going to have a much shorter expansion and that there are going to be a whole set of consequences on the, the other side. I think the idea that is in some of the talk about the dual mandate, that somehow there's this tension. You can have a stronger economy and more help for poor people if you run a hot economy and accept some inflation. That is not, I think, what economics teaches. What economics teaches, and this is in virtually every textbook, is that the trade-off is between accelerating inflation and abnormally low unemployment. And that if you try to run a hot economy, it's not that you just have to live with some more inflation. That could conceivably be okay. It's that you have to live with an inflation that's accelerating. And that once you have a high rate of inflation, if you want to decelerate inflation, the only way you can do it is by inducing a substantial increase in unemployment. And that's why I don't take nearly as much heart as I think Annie does from the strength of the economy over the last few months. Yeah, to be clear, I'm with you that I don't know. I think that it's a very complicated policy picture to unravel. The thing that I more was pointing to is that there's a lot of good things going on. And I think that it's been interesting to see the degree of concern despite the fact that problems that we've been talking about for 20 years seem to be remedied. Just to be clear, I really don't know. In part, I think for the same reason that Larry pointed to, that we don't have a lot of great examples of unwinding this particular policy problem to point to. And again, that this is a policy issue to point to feels just very different than what we've been facing for quite some time, given that the sort of high inequality, sluggish growth high unemployment, low inflation issue was what we were looking at. We do have quite a bit of experience with trying to get inflation out of the system. We did that many times in the 50s, in the 60s, and in the 70s. And it was a pretty painful process. I agree with you, but I find it discouraging that people are pretty unhappy now when times are good. And if the view I'm taking is close to right, inflation's not going to get down to levels that are going to feel like price stability without things getting distinctly worse. And I imagine that's going to be even worse from the point of view of the psychology. Let me follow up there for a minute and maybe try to make more express what has been latent in a lot of your comments, which is just the wild card that is... COVID on all of this, I discern maybe a difference of opinion, slight and not categorical among you three. Annie suggested we are out of the so-called COVID recession. Larry is talking about soft landings. We're still sort of going that way. And Catherine, if I can start with you, you've written recently that nearly two years in, the pandemic is still in control 
of the economy. Can you explain what you mean? And then hopefully Annie or Larry can give their thoughts about it. Sure. So COVID's fingerprints are still all over, I think, almost every economic indicator that we have available, whether it's inflation or the jobs report or output or anything else. And just as an example, in the jobs report that came out recently, you can see that the number of people who were employed but reported as absent from work is still about double what it was. This was for November of 2021 relative to the same month in November of 2019. So just as a for instance, the number of people who are employed in childcare jobs is still down about 10%. And that's related to the risks of working at a childcare facility. It's related to broader labor shortages. And it's related to the fact that these were always jobs that were difficult to fill in relatively low wage. And even if wages have gone up, they're still not that attractive. They've probably become less attractive in many respects. And all of that is also tied up with COVID and has ripple effects throughout the economy, making it harder for parents to return to work for example. So the pandemic is still kind of intertwined with all of these forces. And and I think that's one reason why it's hard to know how strong of an allegory or precedent, whatever you want to call it, previous experiences with something like inflation might be. I agree with Larry that we don't have a great track record of coming out of an inflationary environment with the so-called soft landing. Usually there has been a really painful correction of some kind, a recession, to be blunt. And maybe that would happen this time around. But we also have some other really weird, unpredictable forces in the economy, again, related to the pandemic that just make it hard to tell if past experience directly translates. So for example, these supply chain bottlenecks that we have around the world, many of them are driven by COVID. The question about what's behind the worker shortages, for example, is complicated? And is it people reevaluating their lives, their work-life balance or whatever? Is it about people not having access to childcare? Is it people having, in the United States at the very least, uh, pretty big savings as a cash cushion so that they don't have to go back to work immediately? But in places like China, where they are quarantining the crews of ships that are bringing in shipping containers, and they're not allowing American companies to swap out crews, and that's leading to people not wanting to work as long because they've already been on an extended tour of duty. That's also related to COVID. And we don't know how the Omicron variant, for example, will further complicate these kinds of factors. So it's just hard to know, given that we're in this very weird state of circumstances related to the pandemic, how much the past is a guide here. Some of these problems may unwind themselves as supply chains normalize. Maybe the Omicron variant won't be so bad and supply chains will get back to normal and manufacturing will normalize and it'll be easier for companies to make goods and ship those goods and and whatever else. And maybe that will end up easing some of the inflationary pressures in a way that there isn't really a precedent (laughs) for that phenomenon happening in the past. Maybe that won't happen. I don't know. But it's a little bit difficult to say, in my view, well, let's just look at what happened in the late 70s, early 80s. 75, right? Right. Just because a lot was similar, but there's a pretty important difference, too. (laughs) And, And I just don't know how that will play out. Catherine is obviously right that there's a lot of uncertainty. And Catherine is obviously right that the pandemic is a substantial part of the story. I said earlier in the year that I thought there was a one-third chance that this would work out successfully to a soft landing, given how high inflation has gotten and how much inflation expectation moved up. I think I would take that one-third chance of a soft landing down to perhaps a fifth. Now, I think what I would say is that All the things Catherine described could happen. But if you sort of say to yourself, usually when the economy is overheating, it tends to end badly. And now the economy is overheating and there's also a pandemic around. Yes, I don't think that makes it lots less likely to end in a problematic kind of way. There's something else we know that's pretty important here, which is that monetary policy 
works with about a nine month, one year lag. And that we now have the easiest monetary policy in history. And so we got a lot of a year ahead of us where the Fed's not going to have slowed down the economy. Now, it might turn out that all of a sudden we're going to have gluts of lots of goods. But I talked to a lot of businesses. I'm sure Catherine and Annie talked to more because they're reporters. But in general, what I hear from them is, yeah, we tried paying recruiting bonuses. We tried working our people more hours. But gosh, it now looks like we're going to have to raise wages. And our input costs are going up as well. But it's really not that bad because we have a lot of pricing power and we think we're going to be able to push it on to our customers. And that pervasive anecdote seems to me to be pointing more towards inflation spiral than towards spontaneous disinflation. Yeah, I broadly agree with everything that's been said. I think that if we're moving to a world in which the virus becomes kind of like a flu and is with us sort of permanently, I don't know what that looks like. I just anecdotally have heard about a lot of pullback of activity because of Omicron, but I think that there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, about how businesses and consumers and individuals are going to respond as we're going into the third year of the pandemic and people have become more used to it. So I think kind of changing pandemic behavior is another thing that I'm just really uncertain about and is really going to affect how this all shakes out next year. But no, while I certainly think that in some ways, clearly on paper, we recovered quite a bit. And as a technical point, it was a very, very, very short recession. We remain in this very strange environment that's driven by public health mandates and perhaps border closures and individuals reacting in still kind of idiosyncratic ways that I'm not sure we understand. Also, I want to point out something that Catherine was highlighting, which is just you still have a lot of issues with school closures and with childcare that are affecting the labor market in pretty profound and strange ways, really changing how parents are interacting with the labor market. And I would have thought that that would have improved a lot more by now than it has, but it still just remains, I think, particularly for women, a really big issue affecting how they're interacting with the economy. So no, I certainly wouldn't say that it feels like we're out on the other side of it. And I definitely think after we see whether the holidays spike hospitalizations and case rates, again, we'll have a better sense. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we dig up the dirt on the agave plant to find out the difference between tequila and mezcal. So first things first, tequila is a type of mezcal, much like bourbon is a type of whiskey. In general, tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcals are tequilas. Allow me to explain. Tequila can only come from the blue agave plant in specific regions of Mexico, like the region of Jalisco, where the city of tequila is located. No coincidence there. Mezcal, however, can be made from many varieties of agave, specifically from the heart of the agave, known as the piña. The distillery process for tequila and mezcal is also different. Tequila is produced by steaming the blue agave and then distilling it in copper stills for a toasty, clean taste. On the other hand, mezcal, which appropriately means oven-cooked agave, is cooked in earthen pits with wood and charcoal before being distilled in clay pots. No wonder mezcal, which is typically consumed straight, has more of a smoky, earthy taste. Of course, the best way to get to know the differences between tequila and mezcal is to pick up a bottle of each from your Total Wine and & More and pour hundreds of years of tradition right into your glass. Cheers! And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's segue a bit into how this plays out on the political landscape, where the psychological factors you mentioned hit home with even increased force. We know that the White House is hugely focused on inflation. It seems to be affecting Biden's standing, not Withstanding the, the basic organic health of the economy, as all three of you have mentioned, he's declared it a priority to reverse the trend. But at bottom, what can he, as opposed to, say, Powell or just businesses, really do about it? I think there are a few things. 
that the president can do. And let me say that I'm not sure so much that we have an underlying organically healthy economy as it is we have a binge that we're enjoying. That's a different thing, unfortunately. But I think there are a few things. I think that Build Back Better could be built even better. I strongly support the legislation. Given a choice between voting for it in its current form and voting against it in its current form, I think it's clear that one should vote for the legislation in its current form. That said, I think we're applying more fiscal stimulus over the next several years than we should be, and that we could redesign that legislation principally by removing all the state and local tax deduction reduction in ways that would make it less fiscally stimulative and less contributing to inflation over the next several years. Second, the president could use his authorities to reduce tariffs. In many cases, the tariffs are a stop or I'll shoot myself in the foot kind of policy because they make the price of inputs on which American producers rely. Think of automobile producers and steel as an example, more expensive and therefore undercut American competitiveness rather than increasing competitiveness, and they raise prices to consumers. Third, I think we need to be attentive to energy supply issues. It's pretty clear that there's a substantial reduction in energy investment relative to what there normally would be with oil prices and oil prospective prices at their current levels. A ton of that has to do with developments in business, but I suspect there's some public policy overhang there, and we've got to find a formulation that gets us to the long run through the short run if we're going to succeed in doing that. I think that there are, though, real limits to the difference that policy can make, both because the most important policy for inflation is monetary policy, and because a lot of this is driven by broad economic forces that are not subject to the control of policymakers. I think we need to be very careful about starting to compensate people for the increases in prices, because that kind of thing can easily start leading to cycles that can get very expensive and ultimately end up contributing to inflation. But I think that it's not an easy set of challenges. So what I would say is that I agree with most of what's been said that Biden doesn't have a lot of useful policy levers to deal with inflation at this point. The White House has been trying to demonstrate that they're doing something. You know, it reminds me of that scene in Spaceballs where the Rick Moranis character is running around saying, do something. And everybody else says, do something. So they're like, yeah, we're going to release some oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which amounts to like two days worth of oil supply. And we're going to investigate those oil and gas companies for being anti-competitive or whatever. And that stuff I don't think is going to really do very much. They do have greater power at their disposal to do something on tariffs. The other bucket of policies where they do have some power has to do with immigration. And Larry did not touch on that. I've written quite a bit about this, but when we look at what's behind the labor shortages, as I said, there are a lot of complicated factors about people's changing priorities and fear of getting sick on the job or infecting your family and childcare issues and transit issues and everything else. But one area of like relatively low-hanging fruit that we could address has to do with legal immigration. And the legal immigration system was hobbled under Trump deliberately and made worse by the pandemic in conjunction with Trump policies, some of which were defensible (laughs) in response to the pandemic and others were using the pandemic as an excuse to close off various forms of legal immigration. And things have actually gotten worse this year. There are different ways to kind of back out how much bigger the labor force might be if pre-Trump immigration trends had continued. 
by one estimate that I came up with, it's probably a couple million additional people <laughs> would be, at least in the country, most of whom would be in the labor force. And then there's the other issue that has gotten worse, again, under Biden, which is that legal immigrants who are already here are having their work permits expire just because they submitted for renewal and the agency that is supposed to process their renewals is so backed up that they're just never getting to them and, and people are losing their jobs. So these are people who are already here illegally, who already have been working, want to continue working at a time when employers are having difficulty finding employees and are being forced out of their jobs. I haven't been able to get a number on the record for how many people are in this situation, but from what I've heard, it is an enormous <laughs> population of people who are in this boat. And there have been a bunch of class action lawsuits and they just haven't gotten a ton of attention. But there are people who are in all sorts of industries who are affected by this. I've interviewed physicians, nurses, truck drivers. I talked to a pre-K teacher recently who's in this situation. Again, these are all people who are legal immigrants who had been working, who cannot work because the immigration system has been broken. And the Biden administration, as far as I can tell, doesn't seem terribly motivated to fix it. They're reversing a lot of the Trump policies, but the backlogs are so bad if they've changed maybe some of the flow of applications that they're processing, but the backlog of them, that's actually in some areas getting worse. And they could be doing more. There are some things that they could do quite easily that they haven't done. And I don't really know why. I don't know if it's that they're not motivated, if they're worried that it's too politically toxic for them to be seen as doing anything that liberalizes the immigration system. You know, it'll be all over Fox News, something about open borders or whatever. But that's a policy lever that they could be using to alleviate some of these supply chain issues in the United States and worker shortages in our healthcare system, among other places, and they're not. And I have not been able to get a straight answer about why. It's a very good point. It's not something I thought a ton about, but it's a great point to make. To follow up a little bit on what Catherine said, the White House can't do a lot about a lot of this. We don't have an inflation magic wand that can just solve that issue, particularly not when a lot of this stimulus spending is baked in. A lot of it passed in the Trump administration. And when you do face trade-offs in monetary policy, there's a lag, as Larry pointed out. And I think the White House has been focusing on reducing cost pressures in the long term. But you're talking about structural changes that will take years or perhaps even decades. So I think, you know, one problem that persists in American life is we have a housing shortage of roughly six million units. It's particularly intense in metro areas. It's obviously very, very, very expensive to live in the highest productivity parts of the United States economy. But fixing that, that's not even in the federal government's control. It's mostly in local government's control. And it's a policy problem that we're looking at decades if it ever gets fixed. One other thing that has happened, people's thoughts about the economy in general have diverged pretty dramatically from their own personal financial situations, which I think has probably to do with inflation and probably is at least in part an expression of a partisan economic expectations gap that has grown really dramatically as partisanship itself has kind of grown. Richard Curtin at the University of Michigan, who does a lot of great work on this, and he shows that there was always a partisan economic expectation gaps. It used to be roughly 20 points, 15, 20 points. It's now something like 50, 60, 70. And people's opinions about the economy have kind of hardened with the lens of the party that they're on with independence becoming a little bit more erratic. It's kind of hard to tell. You can look at how somebody voted, and that's probably a pretty good indication of how they feel about the economy. Even Democrats, I think, despite the unemployment rate being pretty low, despite a lot of them getting these CTC payments, despite a lot of them sitting on a decent wealth cushion, I think the coronavirus has just been really hard on people. Losing childcare has been really hard on people. A lot of people got sick. A lot of people died. and. It's a miasmatic, difficult time, I think, to understand exactly how all these numbers are shaking out. As we've talked about repeatedly in this hour, the coronavirus has just been a very strange thing economically and electorally. And I think that all of that is contributing to that gap. Of course, life isn't going to feel good if you've lost a family member and you're afraid to go out of your house and your kid is still on a Zoom schedule. And that's going to make it really hard for you to take a job. It's all just very unusual right now. Let's think about a closeout question, probably of the sort that economists hate because it's 
general and divorced from the specific facts and figures, but we have economic fundamentals that, depending on which of the three of you and others you talk to, are anywhere from impressive to fundamentally solid, but we have a psychological profile about how people are viewing those that is less sanguine. And we have this persistent wild card that may last who knows how long and seems to make it all an extra dimension, like fourth or fifth dimension chess. So I just wanted to ask if you could encapsulate your thoughts about how pessimistic or optimistic we should be about not just the economy, but people's economic fortunes and lives and where it'll stand in six months, a year, two years. It really depends on what day you ask me. (laughs) I feel like some days I'm quite optimistic and some days I'm quite pessimistic. And a lot of that, to be honest, is driven by whatever the latest information is about Omicron (laughs) right now. I think we don't know. It looks like it's more contagious, but not as virulent as previous strains, which I guess would be a relatively benign outcome if, in fact, we were going to get stuck with another strain. But we still don't really know how consumers are going to react to it, how governments around the world are going to react to it. If that's going to lead to more upward price pressures or some disinflationary pressures, maybe it'll decrease demand for oil. And so oil prices will go down and gasoline prices will go down and Americans will be happy. Or maybe you'll have more supply chain problems and that'll push prices up. I don't know. I still remain hopeful that there is the possibility that assuming the pandemic doesn't get a lot worse, in fact, it gets better, that the economy does have a not as painful outcome as Larry was forecasting, particularly since there'll be some fiscal drag next year. So if you're worried about inflation, that should weigh in the other direction. Companies are hiring, people are going back to work. Hopefully schools will be in some more normal schedule and childcare facilities will continue reopening. There is the possibility for a softer landing. I don't know how likely that is. And as I said, the relative probability that I place on that outcome varies a lot from day to day, particularly depending on what it looks like the public health crisis will be in the near future. I still think the pandemic is in charge. COVID is in charge. That's absolutely correct. And I think that one thing that I've seen, I don't have a ton of evidence for this, but from talking to people in the past year is that very often there's kind of like a synecdoche or a replacement or something. When people say that they're mad about inflation or upset about inflation, they're really talking about gas prices, which are obviously part of that, but a small part of it. We know there's so much evidence that people are just enormously sensitive to the price of gas because, you know, most Americans drive to work, right? Price is highly variable. It's like, you know, on a big sign in the middle of your town, that (laughs) kind of thing. Similarly, you ask people if they're worried about the economy and and that's heavily covered by their feelings about the coronavirus. We're in, I think, a really uncertain policy environment in which I think there's a lot of good things going on and a lot of difficult things going on, and it's really hard to shake out. So I never know, (laughs) and I I always try to be really careful about forecasting because goodness knows, I never know. But I feel particularly uncertain at this moment. I'm sort of surprised by, given how uncertain the past two years have been, but we remain in just a very, very strange, and in a lot of ways, a very difficult moment in which we're doing a lot of policy that feels in some ways kind of experimental and are passing a lot of complicated things sort of left and right, I sort of throw my hands up, which I know is not very satisfying. (laughs) I totally hear you. I get this all the time based on my Supreme Court expertise, such as it is, you know, well, how's the court going to come out? You can tell us, right? Five, four or six, three, the other way. I think the economy has enormous strengths in terms of the innovativeness of the American people in terms of the quality of American technology, in terms of the sense of connection that the United States has with every other part of the world. It's ultimately the great strength of the United States that there are lots of conversations like the one we're having, where people become very concerned about the future and express great alarm But then it has a way of proving to be a self-denying prophecy, and things have a way of working themselves out. So I think we're right to be alarmed, but 
if alarm were to translate into fatalistic pessimism, that would be the real tragedy. Okay, great discussion. And it's all the time we have, except for a minute for our final Talking Five feature. And the question for today to please answer in five words or fewer is, is cryptocurrency the real deal? I see a smile from Catherine. Are you ready to venture something? Uh, I'm I'm de- debating how much hate mail I'm willing to get. <laughs> you don't love all the missives from the crypto bros? Oh, my you? God. <laughs> I could make a crack about greater fools, but sure, in some situations. How's that? It's a real deal, but not the real deal. <laughs> I'm going to go with it's with us. <laughs> <laughs> And on this episode, from the start to finish, I really only have one choice, which is what they said. Okay, we are out of time. Thank you very much to Annie Lowry, Catherine Rampell, and Larry Summers. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. We're about to add a whole new level of Patreon, which will include regular Q&As with me and other new exclusive features. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Fed, produced by Mal Meliez. Associate producer, Olivia Henriksen. Assistant producer, Matt McArdle. Sound engineering by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Our consulting producers are Dustin Canals and Andrea Carla Michaels. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.